Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind-the-scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. Okay, this is going to be pretty fun today. We're actually going to do a solo show. I've heard a lot of comments and feedback from all of you to do a solo show, a breakdown of how we underwrite deals. So that's what I'm going to get into today. I'm going to walk you through how we underwrite deals at Dove Hill Capital Management, which is my investment platform, how we think about investing, the process from when we identify a deal to how it first walks through the door. We're going to go through all of that today. But a great place to start is to really explain what underwriting is. And that's a pretty broad concept that we dial in specifically for hospitality investing, but you could use it for all types of real estate investing. And frankly, what we discuss here today is really going to apply to a lot of different types of real estate. We're going to focus on hospitality though. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking to invest in hospitality deals, my hope is that you come away from this episode with some great takeaways that you can use in your business or investing actively or passively. And underwriting is really, in the context of hospitality real estate, it refers to the process of evaluating and assessing the financial viability of a hotel or other hospitality property before making an investment decision. It involves a comprehensive analysis of the property's financial performance, market conditions, and potential risks to determine whether the investment is likely to meet the investor's goals and expectations. To sum that up, you are basically measuring the risk against the potential reward as you think about doing a deal. And during the underwriting process, investors or lenders examine various aspects of the hospitality property's historical and projected financial performance, the competition, the demand generators, the management, the quality of the asset, They also evaluate macroeconomic factors that are largely out of your control, such as economic growth, tourism trends, and regional supply and demand dynamics to gauge the property's future performance. So when a deal comes in to Dove Hill, we have a lot of deals coming to us off market. In fact, a year ago, 80% of our deals were primarily on market, meaning they come from the big brokerage houses from JLL, Newmark, Eastill, CBRE, HREC, 
And that was where we were getting our deal flow. They would send out a flyer, a bunch of people would get the same flyer, we'd look and we'd do it. But I think there's a better approach. And we've actually shifted the majority of our pipeline to off-market deals. And we're sourcing those through our broad, vertically integrated network, which is either through our deal rewards program, where, in, where we incentivize people that are in the world of real estate to bring us deals. We're getting deals through our management company, et cetera. So when a deal comes in, we first evaluate a couple key criteria. Is it in a location that we find interesting? Do the size parameters meet our goals and objective for our strategy and our investment outlook? Is it the type of brand we want to do? Is it unbranded, branded? So if it meets those initial gating criteria, then we'll likely kind of dig in to a lot of the qualitative factors first before doing a back of napkin underwriting or even a full underwriting. We want to understand the business and we want to understand the hotel. So when we look at the qualitative factors, here's what I mean. We want to understand the location. Where is it? If it's in a city, where in the city? Is that the best location or the worst location? If it's in a resort market, how is the access to the airport, to the beach, to other demand generators? We also want to think of the diversity of demand. We typically like to invest in markets with a diverse demand set. That means you have demand coming from multiple different sources. It could be business demand. It could be leisure demand. It could be group demand. A resort is a great place to summarize diversity of demand because they oftentimes get a mix of business, leisure, group, some association travel, et cetera. You really want to understand that if you are in a downtown market and all of your customers come from business travel and then COVID happens, wow, then you got a problem. Maybe COVID doesn't happen, but maybe just a recession happens. Well, all of your demand is business and maybe that business travel pulled back. It's just something to think about. It's not something to say, I'm only going to do deals with diversity of demand, but it's something that we weight heavily. Another thing that we'll then think about is, okay, what is the strategy here? What is the business plan? What are we going to do? Is this going to be a value add deal where we're going to be doing a renovation? We're going to be adding value by upgrading our management and repositioning the strategy of the hotel. Is it a core investment? Is this really like a legacy investment and the property is great? We just need to maybe layer on a little bit, add a little bit of an enhancement, but it's already doing great. Are we renovating the hotel? And that is where the pop and the lift from the revenue growth will come from. Potentially, it's a repositioning. Are we turning a Holiday Inn into a boutique lifestyle hotel? And lastly, maybe we're just upgrading the management. Maybe the bones are really good, but it's not making money. The current operator has no idea what he's doing. So we're going to come in and figure out how to do it better, upgrade the management, upgrade the food and beverage program, and really want a world-class operation. Those are kind of how we think about the business plan. Next, with any business plan, there's going to be capital expenditures. So if we're going in and we're doing a renovation, well, that's going to be pretty extensive from a CapEx standpoint. And we're going to want to think about what each component, each area is going to cost. If we're just going in and maybe we're refreshing the lobby, buying some new furniture out by the pool, then it's a different CapEx program. But it's certainly something we're going to want to think about. And CapEx is not just how much you're going to spend on the construction. It's how long is it going to take? 
and what the displacement is going to be in the impact to revenue. And then once it's done, what is the impact to revenue? Is it adding additional revenue or are you just doing the renovation to keep up with the competition? In our view, if you're just doing the renovation to keep up with the competition, well, your financials better be good because if you're going to now invest money in the asset just to be doing the same as what you were doing or just to keep up with the competition, well, that might not be the best strategy. The next thing we really like to focus on is the brand. Is this unbranded? Is it branded? Is it a soft brand? Can we terminate the brand and bring in a new brand or go independent? These are all things that we tie into our business plan and think globally what our main objective is, what our strategy is, and then what levers we can pull to better effectuate that strategy to create more value for our investors, to drive more revenue, and ultimately create a better product. The kind of last qualitative thing item that we really focus on is new supply. New supply is the killer to every great deal. And my company tends to focus on high barrier to entry markets where the land is scarce, the land is expensive, hotels often aren't the highest and best use. So there aren't many being built. So we try and find markets that are distinct, that are highly differentiated, but that also have a high barrier to entry with limited new supply coming in. If you are in a Southeast location and you're near an airport and land is plentiful and every new person that walks down the street can just buy a piece of land and build a hotel, well, the competition is just going to eat you alive every single day because the newest and best thing is always going to win out and you're just going to be competing on price, particularly on a limited service hotel, and that's your only method. So it's really important to understand new supply. Maybe you're in a top-tier market, but the city is underwriting a huge convention center hotel right across from your hotel, and that's going to take away some of your business. But new supply doesn't always take away business. There's a concept called induced demand. And that would be a perfect example if you take the convention center option where cities pouring a whole bunch of money into a convention center, they're building a big hotel. Well, that's going to drive business to your hotel if the convention center previously didn't exist and that demand wasn't there and they're bringing in a new segment. So you really got to understand the new supply. The other thing that's important to think about as it relates to new supply is what's real. Oftentimes, people love drawing pretty pictures of hotels because it boosts your ego, makes you feel good, but they're just rendering developers and those things are never going to get built. They're never going to happen. So that's why it's important to have boots on the ground feedback from your local knowledge, but also from people that work in the city, other operators in the market to know what hotels are getting built and what are really just there to make pretty pictures and to get the community excited about, but the thing's never going to get built. So it's really important to understand the new supply, but then within the new supply, what is reality and what is not. The next thing we go into and, and think about are the quantitative factors. And the most obvious one there is price. So you need to evaluate what you can pay for this asset, which isn't always what the broker is telling you to pay. So oftentimes in hospitality, there's not a stated list price, but there's a pricing guidance or pricing indication. You need to come up with your own analysis of where you think pricing is, but it's important to know 
where the broker's guiding because they have a reputation to uphold and they've probably done some work and maybe it's in the ballpark. Maybe it's not, but maybe it is in the ballpark. And it's important to kind of know where that is so you don't waste time. If the price is so far outside of where you can conceivably do this deal, then you might not want to waste time. And you should tell the broker that you're not wait, you're not spending time because of the price. And if there's an opportunity, he'll tell you. Otherwise, he'll tell you, okay, I get it. Another thing about price is kind of how you get to the price. And the most common way to get to a price in hospitality for an existing asset is cap rate and price per key. So we will look at what other similarly hotels have traded for in the past 12 months in this market based on a cap rate. We're going to think about that in relation to the macroeconomic climate, where interest rates are, what our cap rates are relative to the interest rates that we are borrowing at. The other thing that we think about is price per key. What are the trends in this market? How have hotels traded on a per key basis? And another good element to this is what the replacement cost is. Now, just if the replacement cost is high, doesn't mean that's a reason to do a deal. It still economically has to make sense based on the returns, but it's a good metric to determine whether you're getting a good deal, whether you're overpaying, et cetera. You're also going to pay more for location, and that's going to come into the cap rate and the price per key. And a couple of things that are going to drive down the cap rate, which means make it more expensive, will be location, brand affiliation, scarcity of hotels in the market. I think there's definitely a vanity factor that will also drive down cap rate. Renovation and CapEx spend will, depending on what it is, if there's no CapEx spend needed, that'll certainly drive down the cap rate. If there's a lot of CapEx spend needed, that'll drive up the cap rate. Similarly, that will reflect in the price per key. The next big thing we're going to look at is historical performance, because ultimately what we typically always try to do is not pay someone for the future value and what could happen in the future for the hotel, but how the hotel is has historically performed. You do not want to pay someone for the value that you as the buyer are going to create. Now, in a market environment where there's a more buyers than assets, which would be a very healthy market, then that might also drive up the price. So you're really going to have to keep that in mind when you are evaluating the historical performance and what potentially you can do. But you can't give all of your upside and pay that to the seller. It's just never going to work. And some of the best deals are made at the buy. So it's really important to evaluate the historical performance. Then we're also going to look at how the hotel's performance compares to the market. And hotels, probably like multifamily, have the ability to get data of other hotels in their market. And this is on an average basis, and it's done through a program called Smith Travel Research, which is now owned by CoStar. So we will go in and either buy a STR report or one will be given to us from the property. They're produced weekly, and then there's a monthly one that's also produced. It'll give you a 12-month summary. It'll even go back with additional data into the past. And you can see what 
specifically other hotels in your competitive set are doing, but you can see what the average performance is and how the subject hotel, the hotel that you're thinking about buying, compares to the comp set. So that is something we look at very heavily, and then we'll use that in the five-year model as we're thinking about making projections. A couple key things on the star report. You can't just, if you're buying a hotel, go on hotels.com or Google and search the rates and feel like you have an understanding of what the hotel's revenue is. Unlike apartments, hotels have many different revenue sources and they also have many different types of customers that impact their average daily rate. The rate that you see online is what's called the rack rate. The average daily rate is their true rate that they're selling when you divide the number of rooms by the revenue. And that can't be uncovered just by looking online. So it's important to really get the data and you can't make assumptions about other hotels based on that data either. So the only thing we could do is really look at a star report, but that's going to give you the average. So you might have higher rates that are shown online, but then there's corporate negotiated rates from businesses that are local, or you might have groups that have a special rate. All of that comes into the average rate of the night. Next thing we are going to look at are the revenue trends and how have they performed historically? And again, how do they compare to the market? And do we feel like it's performing above the market, below the market, or at the market? If it's performing above the market, well, can you increase that revenue? Can you maintain it? That all goes back to what the business plan is, what your strategy is, and what returns you are targeting. Lastly, we'll really focus on expenses, and we'll ultimately end up comparing these to other data we have in the market. Maybe we saw a past deal, we looked at another hotel, maybe we operate a hotel in the market, so we'll look at how the expenses compare from that standpoint. A good gauge, rooms expense, depending on the hotel, will typically be 20 to 25, maybe 30%. And depending on the revenue, you might have tremendous flow in that room's expense because the room's expense is really housekeeping, your front office. And at a certain point, that becomes fixed relative to your rate. So if your occupancy is somewhat consistent, but you can charge a higher rate, then you might have better flow through, which would improve your expense margins. It's really important to focus on the expense category, on the undistributed expenses. And these are expenses like taxes and insurance, which are really out of your control. Insurance is huge right now. Insurance rates are up across the board. It's something that we are thinking about. You cannot just rely on what the property is currently paying for insurance. You need to go talk to a broker during the due diligence period and get a hard bid for the insurance that you can rely on. Do not rely on someone else's financials for insurance. As we're going through the model, and then we're going to be growing the model over a five, seven, or 10-year period, depending on the business plan, we're going to need to think about how expenses are going to be growing. And the reality is it's really hard to estimate that. From a revenue standpoint, you can get some great economic data from CoStar or Star. But from the expense side, this is really a macroeconomic evaluation and an inflation evaluation. So one good justifiable way to think about inflation is to go to the St. Louis Fed. They have 
this little tool called Fred, and you can get the 10-year break-even inflation rate. And that's essentially the average inflation over 10 years. And you can model out what would be reasonable for inflation. Obviously, in periods of huge volatility, you can never predict that. But historically, we would tend to underwrite inflation at around 3% for most of our expenses. But when you had COVID, your expenses went completely out of whack because of supply chain issues and lack of labor. So typically, we're at 3%, but there's always nuances to think about. The next thing we're going to do once we kind of understand the business plan, we understand the revenues, we understand the expenses, we want to start modeling this out. And the first way we're going to model it out is going to be on a back of napkin model. And this is really a one or two page model. And we're going to put some very basic revenue, expense, debt, CapEx assumptions, purchase assumptions, sale assumptions in here. And we're going to see what the model spits out and determine if based on that information, you know, what's the cash on cash, what's the IRR, what's the multiple of money, if it's worth pursuing. And if it is worth pursuing, typically our next step is to probably go out and tour the property, tour the market if we haven't already been there and really understand it. Then we'll come back to home base and we'll start doing our more elaborate model, which is, you know, probably at least 10 tabs and very detailed and built out. And in that detailed model is where we really start to refine the business plan and what the next five, seven, or 10 years looks like. So to do that, we'll first start with revenue projections. And we're going to think about revenue in relation to the star competitive set. So we're going to basically assume how much revenue per available room the hotel is going to get in relation to its competitive set. So it's either going to get less, the same, or more. 100 is its fair share. If it's less, that would be something like 80 or 90. If it's more, that'd be 110 or 20. So we're going to underwrite the market growth. So maybe we get a co-star report and it says the market's going to grow 4%, 4%, 4%, then 5% in year five. We're going to underwrite that if we agree with it, if we saw the new supply and we think that's reasonable. Then we're going to evaluate how our hotel compares to the market and its specific competitive set. We may also adjust the competitive set and order a new star report if our business plan is changing. For example, if we're converting a Holiday Inn into a boutique lifestyle hotel in a great market, well, we're not going to use the same competitive set and same market for this little specific area data that it was when it was a Holiday Inn. We're going to get the data from the hotels that we think the Holiday Inn is going to the new hotel, the new boutique lifestyle hotel is going to compete with when it's completed. So that's something we'll think about. We'll look at the difference in rate and we'll evaluate the rate lift from going from a, just a basic Holiday Inn to a boutique lifestyle hotel. During this process, we'll also start to utilize our vertically integrated management company. One of the things that sets Dove Hill apart from a lot of our competitors is we have an in-house management team and we use it incredibly. It is a huge competitive advantage for us. So we're going to start looping in some key members of the team. We're going to loop in our head of sales and revenue. We're going to loop in the president of the management company to really evaluate our business plan, oftentimes on the investment side everyone's excited. They become 
you know, they drink their own Kool-Aid, they make assumptions that may or may not happen. The management company is a real great check on their underwriting. And they also might see things that we don't see, positive or negative. They might see an opportunity we didn't see. They might see a challenge we didn't see. So this is where in this five-year model, we'll start sharing it back between the two groups, the investment side and the operation side, to determine the optimal revenue, expense, and what other opportunities we haven't uncovered. One opportunity on the revenue side that we recently uncovered on a new deal is creating additional room categories to drive more rate. And this was something that completely came from our revenue side. Maybe they're taking, the hotel's taking too much occupancy and it should reduce the occupancy, which adds expense and add more rate. A real strong revenue management team like we have is able to pull additional data that maybe the investment team doesn't look at on a regular basis and is able to find opportunities. Then we'll kind of grow expenses based on what the industry standard are, what other hotels in our portfolio operate at based on the business plan, based on what we're changing. And then we'll look at new supply. How is new supply going to impact our revenue assumptions, our exit assumptions? And we're going to model this out we're going to look at the net operating income per key. How does that compare to other hotels we operate or other hotels in the market? That is a tremendous metric. So from there, we kind of have our, call it our P&L, our five-year P&L built out, what our projections are going to be. Then we'll start digging into some of the CapEx assumptions. And the key there on the CapEx assumptions is you really have to honestly be intellectually honest and match them with your business plan. You also need to fact check that stuff to reality. Like, you know, seven years ago, oftentimes hotel investors have to convert like a, a room with a bathtub to a room with a shower. And back in the day, this would cost like 7,000 bucks. Now this costs probably $12,000 a room. So the numbers have changed dramatically and it's really important to have key intel from local boots on the ground, contractors, other operators in the market, look at other projects that you have done with similar scopes to really figure out what the CapEx program should be. Once we kind of get into due diligence, we are definitely going to engage a construction manager that we've worked with before. We're not going to typically pay them and we're going to explain our business plan. We're going to help... Uh, identify areas that we've seen as potential issues and things that we'd like to improve. They're going to bring up things on their walk and we're going to create a budget together. And hopefully if they want the business, that budget should look very similar to what they can execute on going forward. Now you got to come up with a design and really get more detailed, but this is really, really a good plan. Another thing that we typically do is we will engage detailed property condition assessment reports. And if we have a operating property in the market that has a relationship with maybe a plumber or an electrician or a mechanical contractor, we'll walk the potential property with those professionals and evaluate what needs to be done. Another key area we focus on are roofs and elevators. And I always caution people, be careful getting into a project where you're going to end up spending more the CapEx behind the scenes, back of the house, as opposed to on return on investment CapEx, where you're going to be able to lift revenue. So if you're looking at an investment and the majority of CapEx 
is not helping you drive additional revenue, that is something that would definitely give me pause and make me really want to evaluate it because you are spending dollars to fix stuff that no one will ever pay you for. That is absolutely something that needs to be reflected in the purchase price. And you have to be getting a way below market deal for this asset to be able to take that risk and spend dollars, which typically are going to multiply for something that the guest is never going to pay you and an end buyer is never going to pay you for. Windows tends to be another element as well. One great place to kind of a little hack and a trick to identify CapEx issues is to look at the TripAdvisor reviews. A lot of times guests will identify issues that you might not be aware of, like a mildew smell, a mold smell, broken items in the room, poor condition in the room. All this stuff will come up on TripAdvisor reviews, and you can use that to inform your CapEx assumptions. Some of the great things about hospitality investing is you get to walk the property and you can do it anytime you want. If you're buying a multifamily deal or an industrial deal, you have to make an appointment. Everyone knows it's very organized. It's very structured. It's a big show. Well, in a hotel, you can come in whenever you want and really see how it's performing, see how it looks. You can go there when it's raining and see what happens when it rains. You can get a room and see what the room looks like and see what your experience like. It's a real awesome way to determine what the opportunities might be and what the business plan ultimately might be as well. Kind of associated with CapEx, we also build out what our soft costs are going to be like and what our other costs are going to include. So this might be legal fees, this might be working capital, this might be an interest reserve, this might be lender costs, this might be architectural and design fees. All that stuff needs to be assumed with CapEx. And depending on the renovation, you're definitely going to want to set aside working capital and potentially interest reserve. Working capital is very, very important because when you buy a hotel, you are taking over day one. You have payroll. You are taking over an operating business. So you are going to need cash to cover certain expenses before that revenue might roll in. We also obviously heavily, heavily focus on underwriting the capital structure. And this is really the capital stack, what the debt is going to look like and what the equity is going to look like. Do you need to be bring in preferred equity? Do you need to bring in MES? So debt is something that is incredibly important with hospitality. We'll typically finance a deal between 55 and 65%. And we have a couple debt brokers that we work with. And depending on the deal, depending on the process, we might go to a relationship lender directly or utilize a debt broker. And we're going to be wanting to talk to that debt broker throughout the process to really get live feedback on the market, how we should be underwriting the deal, what interest rates we should be using, what term we should be using, is it interest only, amortization, whatever it may be, get that feedback from the debt broker 100%. And then while we're going through due diligence, we'll start to run a debt process so that by the time we have to go hard, we always go hard with a executed term sheet from a lender and maybe even two lenders. But 
We'll typically sign one, but maybe we'll have two or three LOIs that we could execute on. So at least we have a backup if something happens. During this phase, we'll also be lining up our equity. Obviously, we've raised over $100 million from private capital, which is high net worth and family offices. But we've raised almost more than that, frankly, from institutional partners. So we'll evaluate based on the deal, based on the profile, whether we want to do this deal with all private capital, whether we want to do it with all an institutional partner, maybe we'll mix the two. And through that, we'll also evaluate what the structure of that equity is going to be like. How much is RGP going to put in? What promote or carried interest are we going to get? In other words, what does the waterfall look like? We'll start modeling that out with private capital that's more of a stated waterfall with institutional capital, frankly, because they're putting in typically 90% of the capital, they are going to offer what they want. And maybe you run a process between other institutional partners. But either way, before we go hard, we are going to have our equity lined up. You're going to have our debt lined up. If we have an equity partner, we're going to have a deposit sharing agreement with that partner in place. So one of us doesn't get stuck with a hard deposit and is not committed to the deal, despite a verbal commitment, we always get something in writing and hard cash during this phase as well. And then no investment is an investment without looking at the exit scenario. So we are going to evaluate whether this is a three-year deal, five-year deal, seven-year deal, 10-year deal. And even if we found an asset that we wanted to hold forever, the typical kind of industry standard approach is to underwrite it based on an exit, even if you don't have plans to sell it. And maybe that's not an exit, but maybe it's a refinance. So you could also do a refinance in two or three years once the asset stabilizes it, but maybe you see additional growth in the market and you want to hold it for five or seven years after that. So you'd show a refinance, then a sale. Sale is really tough because in our view, that should be based off a cap rate. And frankly, no one really knows where cap rates are going to be five to seven years now. So this is the art more than the science, frankly. And you really have to use data to inform a gut instinct. But the most prudent thing is to be conservative and to do a sensitivity analysis. So whether your deal sells for an eight cap, a nine cap, or a 10 cap, maybe a six cap, you know where the range of returns are and whatever is potentially reasonable or possible, you want to at least know that you're getting some return. And that's that's how we look at it. But we want to have a high degree of certainty that we're going to hit the return that we expect on a base, base case scenario. And we often will underwrite a high case and a base case and compare the two. But we want to have more certainty that we will hit our underwriting than not. And obviously, if we don't, then we won't proceed with the deal. And that's the whole point of underwriting. Another thing we really, really think about, and this is something that certainly has evolved throughout our company, but we state what the risks and mitigants are to any deal. So oftentimes when you're on the investment team, you get excited about a deal and the operations team layers in and your creative planning starts weighing in and you gloss over a lot of the risks. It's really important to explicitly state what the risks are 
and how you plan on mitigating them, how you plan on solving them or reducing the likelihood that that risk happens. Sometimes you might just have to identify the risk, but you might not have a mitigant. It could just be something completely out of your control, but you want to identify it and at least call it out. And it's also good for your investors to know and your investment committee know that you are thinking about these types of things. I want to just highlight a couple of the mistakes that we have made, because we've certainly made a lot. We've had more success than mistakes, but I want to talk about some of the mistakes that we made. And one thing that's really critical when underwriting the historical performance is to look at the variation month over month, but like month one, year one versus month one, year two. So you can see an anomaly and you want to look at this month over month and you could do it on the T12 as well. So you want to look at, let's just say we were buying a hotel in 2023. You want to look at the T12 in the current month in 2023, but also look at the T12 in the same month in 2022 and see what was different. And if you see an anomaly, you need to ask what that was because it could be a one-time piece of business that would never come back. So for example, in a deal that we did, there was a tremendous amount of business as a result of a major hurricane that happened. Like there was utility companies and that sort of thing and those sort of guests staying in the hotel. And ultimately, the T12, as we were getting farther and farther away from that period, started to burn off. And by looking back, we were able to identify that that was really a one-time piece of business and an anomaly. Definitely, like I just talked about, you want to have an exit cap rate buffer and you want to sensitize the exit cap rate. And you want to make sure the probability of you making money is way higher, like a magnitude higher than the probability of you losing money. Another thing, especially in this environment, it is crazy right now, insurance rates. Do not rely on the insurance pricing that the seller has listed on their P&L, their financials, whatever it is, go out and get your own insurance pricing and have an actionable quote prior to going hard and moving forward. Also really important to get hard bids on CapEx or at least really solid estimates from people that you've worked with before or people that are reputable in the neighbor in the market. Maybe you have a friend that owns a hotel in the market, you ask them who they use. That's a good resource. One thing to always think about is asbestos and getting detailed property conditions assessments, and you could pay for enhanced testing. It's money well spent. You also want to verify information on the financials. Some people do their financials in a non-appropriate way. Some people maybe do things fraudulently. You really need to vet them out. You cannot take it for granted. One thing that we've done really, really well in my company over the past two years is take advantage of our in-house team and knowledge. We have some amazing operators on our team. We have some amazing revenue people on our team. We have some great people, people on our team. And it ultimately becomes a flywheel because the more deals we do, the better people we bring onto the company, the better resource we have and the better data we have. So that's something that our team really relies on and go fact check with people that are going to be operating it day in and day out. Another thing we started doing recently, and this takes a lot of courage. It You need to be careful in doing it. There's some degree of confidence, but 
Call friends in a market where you're thinking about investing. Seek references in the same market. What do they think about the hotel? What do they know about the hotel? Sure, they may screw you on the deal. They may somehow mix in and, I don't know, undercut you, but you don't have to give out proprietary or confidential information, but get feedback from other people you know that are either investing in the market or operating in the market. It is really enlightening. And it doesn't have to be an owner or an operator. It could be a lender. It could be a brand. It could be just a a manager. Another mistake we've made is on ground leases. My recommendation is, in most cases, stay away from a ground lease. It's essentially just extra leverage. That's really the best way to think about it. Uh, You don't own the land, and you're essentially leveraging the land and making payments on it. In this case, you're not putting a mortgage on it. There's a different owner, but the land is... Uh, not included with the purchase, and you need to make payments. And those payments need to come before your interest payments. So they are a must, as is your debt service on the building. So it's just extra leverage if you think about it. We have an investment committee process at Dove Hill. So, I mean, we've tried to like make it super institutional, but now we have a really good blend of what, what it is and our preparation level. And it's not a set date on the calendar. We call an investment committee meeting when we have an actionable investment item to discuss. We will give periodic investment updates, but we don't have a standing investment committee meeting every week, for example. So in that meeting, we'll present the deal usually in a one-pager, maybe in a more detailed introductory memo, maybe it's, it's even a full memo. And we'll really go through all the nuances of the deal, our business plan, why we think it's great, where the risks are, how we're mitigating them. And we use that as an opportunity for the folks in the meeting to poke holes in the deal, think about downside scenario planning, think about different revenue opportunities that we didn't think about. Maybe we have an external uh, investment committee member. Maybe that person knows the seller, knows someone in the deal, knows someone that owned the deal previously. It's incredibly valuable process. And we'll go back to the investment. We'll first go to the investment committee just to introduce the deal, kind of get approval to uh, not necessarily submit the LOI, but to move to the next step after the LOI is done. So to put up a soft deposit, obviously we're going to go to get approval for a hard deposit. And we're going to use the time of due diligence to really take the unknowns and convert them to knowns. And hopefully at the end of due diligence, we have mostly everything figured out and everything that was unknown is now known. And we present that to the investment committee meeting and seek approval to go hard. And then ultimately we would finally seek approval to to close on the asset as well. But it's a process to hold our team accountable, brings a level of professionalism to an entrepreneurial organization. The preparation is huge. It's something we take a lot of pride in and put a lot of effort in. And it's where we really are forced to undercover everything about the deal and make sure our analysis is sound. From a timing standpoint, when we're thinking about underwriting deals, it's critical. I do not want my team spending time underwriting deals that we are never going to do. So 
I lead the investment side of our business. I'm the CEO of the investment company. It's something I love doing. And I'll have weekly investment pipeline meetings with Charles, who leads our investment team and our analysts and our project management people and potentially the president of our management company. And we'll go through the pipeline. We'll talk about the deals that are in the pipeline, what phase they're in, what level of diligence the team wants to take on that. And that's really where we'll go back to the qualitative. Yes, this is interesting. No, that's not. And yes, if it's in the interesting category, then we'll start underwriting it. But it's really, really important to get to a no or a pass quickly because we want to get deals off of that pipeline that we are not focused on. That's a waste of time. That's a distraction. So the team has time to focus on the deals that are actionable and that we are going to do and that do look interesting. And just the reality of the real estate investment business is you're going to say no if you're a good investor more likely than you say yes. And I think Charlie Munger says something similar, but you have to see enough deals and say no enough times to know which deal is good. That's just a fact. So it's really important to run an organized process around underwriting. So just a little couple of things I wanted to close on. We get our data from Google. It's a great resource. Be sure to Google every hotel news article, what the seller prior paid. And we get our data from Star, CoStar, Calibri. There's a lot of good data sources in hospitality, but frankly, our best data comes from word of mouth, calling our resources, talking to our team, asking them who knows what. The industry is very small. I'm sure your industry, if it's not hospitality, there's also similarities. That's a huge value to us. We underwrite in Excel. It lives on our servers and we share it amongst the team. And when we want the operating team to start to add to the model, we'll like take certain tabs out of the model, send it to them, and then move those tabs back in and link what we have to link up. That way we don't have issues with versions and a bunch of problems which we have made in the past. But the most important thing is to start to get a feel and a rhythm for what deals you want to do and always bring it back to your strategy. Something I didn't mention in the investment process at Dove Hill or in the investment committee process is I always challenge the team, how does that connect with our strategy? Because if you're just running around looking at everything, you're probably not going to do anything or you're going to do stuff that you shouldn't be doing. Focus on your strategy. If you need to revise your strategy or reposition your strategy, that's fine. But focus on your strategy and always bring the deals back to what your goals and objectives are and what your capital's goals and objectives are. I hope you enjoyed that little rundown of how we underwrite deals at Dove Hill. And we are heavily focused on opportunities across the United States, particularly in the Southeast, where people are moving. We're interested in Texas. We're interested in Arizona. And we are heavily focused on highly differentiated lifestyle assets, independent assets, boutique hotels, 
that have a certain size and scale to them where we could add value, do a value add repositioning, a transformation in very high barrier to entry markets. So let us know what you have, bring us a deal. Let's do a deal together. Keep us in mind, have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jay Warzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Thank you.